0: can the Biden plan get us back on track to fight climate change? Climate One conversations feature all aspects of the climate emergency, the individual and the systemic, the exciting and the scary. I'm Greg Dalton. When President Obama took office in 2009, he pledged to take bold action on climate change. And while he did have some successes, there were also some missed opportunities. And the next administration did its best to roll back any progress that Obama and Biden made. Now, growing wildfires and severe storms prove the climate situation is dire and delay is costly.
1: It's kind of like if we knew an asteroid was coming towards the planet and we were building, like, cardboard shelters to protect us. And you were asking us, like, could we build stronger cardboard shelters? No.
0: President-elect Joe Biden has his work cut out for him to get us back up to speed. He's announced an ambitious plan designed to achieve a 100% clean economy and net zero emissions by 2050 and is assembling a team of heavy hitters to get the job done. But he faces criticism from both sides. Republicans claim his plan is too expensive. Sunrise Movement and other progressives accuse him of not being ambitious enough. Amy Westervelt, host of the climate podcast Drilled, says it's time for everyone to get over it. People need to stop
2: politics and do what needs to get done, whether it makes them popular or not, whether it means that they get reelected or not. We have a minimal amount of time. Every scientist is saying that.
0: On today's show, we'll examine the Biden climate agenda, what he hopes to accomplish, and what he can get done with or without congressional support. Biden has a long history of reaching across the aisle, and there's no question that bridge building is a foundation of his political style. But in a Congress so deeply divided, is that skill set of any use? Joining me now are Scott Siegel, a partner at the Washington, D.C. law and lobbying firm Bracewell, which represents fossil fuel and other energy companies. Christy Goldfuss, Senior Vice President for Energy and Environment Policy at the Center for American Progress and a former official in the Obama White House. Siegel thinks when it comes to bipartisanship over climate, there's reason for hope.
3: You know, I it's, it's funny. I 'm regarded as a little bit Pollyanna for people who ha- uh, for people who have uh, industrial clients, but the truth of the matter is I think there are lots of opportunities to work together in a bipartisan fashion and certainly across the divide between industry um, environmental organizations, public interest groups, and the like um, and so just to give you some examples, you know Joe Biden is a technological optimist he uh, has a lot of ideas about uh, spurring on innovation, and uh, that's something that the business community is very interested in, so his uh, proposal to set up an advanced research projects administration that focuses on commercializing technology that uh, can be of use in reducing climate change is important very important and and, uh, and certainly common ground. Uh, there are lots of things that have to do with you know uh, cleaning the power sector, cleaning up uh, automobiles et cetera that that are also areas of common ground uh, where unlikely uh, bedfellows would get together to advance a pro-climate agenda. So I, I'm kind of excited that we have a, a number of opportunities to work together in the next couple of years.
0: And will you and your clients actually push Republican senators to get, to get on board with that if, they, if there's a Republican wall against anything climate?
3: Well, the, I think what we can really do is explain how climate policy affects our industries, our workers, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the chances for a sustained economic recovery. And if we're if we're truthful to that, I think it will have the effect of pushing along, um, particularly moderates on both sides of the aisle.
0: Christy golfus you're among uh, former Obama administration officials calling on President-elect Joe Biden to pursue a climate ambition agenda, building on the second term of the Obama administration. People who know the science say that Obama's efforts were not as ambitious as they should have been. Where can Joe Biden realistically be ambitious now given the fractured political landscape.
4: Well, a couple of points. I I like to remind people that at the end of the Obama administration, we were still operating under the science where we were trying to get to 80 percent by mid-century, 80 percent reductions. So this is two years before the 1.5 degree report, and we really weren't looking at the same set of facts that we have now. And when that 1.5 degree report came out a couple of years ago, it really entirely changed the policy landscape. It's dramatically different to get to net zero by 2050 than it is to get to 80 percent because everybody sort of sees themselves in that last 20 percent. So a lot has to be on the table. The full portfolio of policies need to be on the table. The other point I would make is we haven't given up on Georgia. So it will definitely either way uh, be a split Congress, a split Senate for sure. And we'll have to see um, what what the actual makeup will be. But either way, there will be the need for bipartisanship. And there will be the need, as Scott just said, uh, to really work across the aisle. And I also am optimistic. We even heard uh, Mitch McConnell say something just the other day about working together on a large stimulus package with the new administration, knowing that the Build Back Better agenda will take investment and will take money. But when you look across the federal government as a whole, there are so many different opportunities and levers that the federal government has in each different agency. So just to name a few of the ones that uh, fit with the president-elect's agenda already, you can look at the Treasury Department, which we didn't spend a lot of time focused on during the Obama administration. You can uh, easily change the um really how easy it is to invest in fossil fuels or in renewables. You can tip the scales one way or another with the existing tools at the Treasury Department. You can make money cheaper for one of those options or for the other. You can look at climate risk and really make that disclosure uh, clear to the public what it's costing us. And I think you're already seeing signs from the nominees and the um, people they're choosing that climate is going to be a part of every single agency. Department of the Interior. That's where you have full control over oil and gas development on public lands and wind and renewables uh, on public lands and offshore. So I expect that you're going to see early action on offshore wind. And then at USDA, there is a huge pot of money that you could actually turn into a carbon bank without any engagement or change of legislation from Congress. And that carbon bank could really be used to incentivize uh, renewable energy on agricultural lands and specific practices that are climate smart on agricultural lands. So those are just a few of the options, but really there are hundreds and hundreds of tools that when you use them appropriately and you think about the cost of inaction, the federal government can really signal where we're headed and have a real impact on the ground.
0: Scott Siegel, how much of what Christy just said do you think Republicans and your energy clients could get on board with?
3: Well, uh, a bunch of it. Uh, for example, uh, the offshore wind. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Biden has promised that uh, that he'll uh, double down. It's a frequent verb choice he uses on uh, offshore wind. And uh, and, you know, I mean, who develops offshore wind? These are large capital intensive projects. They're not developed by, uh, you know, uh, charitable organizations. They're developed by l- at large power companies working together with large power developers with, uh, you know, power purchase agreements that have to be negotiated. And so the vision that Christie laid out is a vision that I think uh, is one that that uh, requires a lot of um, uh, of participation by, by very large uh, corporations. And, you know, in terms of Bringing money to bear, the power of the government. You know, a lot of times when you talk about the development of new technology, you frequently hear this dispre- this uh, expression of the the Valley of Death. Somebody has a good idea, they raise a little bit of money, and then getting it between there and commercialization is a big problem. Uh, the government can play a, a really critical role in incentivizing that kind of uh, technological development. And I will say this: um, that 2050 uh, you know complete decarbonization of the economy by 2050 and the interim goal of 2035 for the power sector um, particularly the power sector goal would require a, a substantial technological breakthroughs to get it done and that means the government has to really participate in it i mean even as we sit here today you know the power sector spending about 110 billion dollars a year on everything from grid improvements to uh, diversifying the energy mix to um, the development of, of new technologies that consumers can use to manage their electricity use. And, and you know, that's resulted, and I, I'm sure as Christy knows, in substantial reductions in the amount of, of uh, CO2 that's, uh, that's uh, released per unit of electricity that's generated. So it's been a good story. And, you know, natural gas obviously plays a part of that story too. And one thing I want to stress here is a bit of the pragmatism of Joe Biden. You know, it's interesting that when the, the uh, Paris Accord was being signed in that airplane hangar you know, in Paris, uh, Joe, Joe Biden was also in Europe. Um, and uh, he was meeting with folks in Eastern Europe, encouraging them to not rely on Russian natural gas, but to instead consider some of the new technology that we developed in the United States, a little thing we call hydraulic fracturing, and to consider uh, potentially purchasing natural gas from uh, from American sources. In, in the form of LNG. So, uh, you know, there's a pragmatism there. I think Joe Biden's got a lot going on. He wants to shepherd economic recovery in the United States, and he wants to do that in ways that make a lot of sense, that develop, build out green infrastructure. He's talked about that at some length. But he also has uh, loyalties and relies upon uh, organized labor who, who tell him that there are, uh, there are go and no-go zones a little bit that have to be, that have to be taken into account. Um, and uh, you know he's also somebody who uh, who uh, I believe politically can walk and chew gum at the same time. You know I I was thrilled the other day to see his interview with um, with I hate to mention another uh, media source but with uh, Tom Friedman over at the New York Times. And and by the way I'm not always thrilled to mention Tom Friedman at the New York Times. But uh, he said in about working with Mitch McConnell if that should be the the way things operate he said I think there are trade offs. But not all compromise is walking away from principle. He knows me, I know him, and I don't ask him to embarrass himself in order to make a deal. You know, that's when it's a pleasure to have 47 years of public service at your disposal because you realize that there is a way forward even on what would otherwise appear to be very, very partisan issues. You can reach common ground. I think energy and environment are some of those issues which at first glance look very partisan, but then when you peel it back, you see, no, there's actually, they're actually regional, uh, they, uh, they deal with issues of consumer choice, they deal with issues of price and supply, and, and they're a lot more complicated. And I think you need adult supervision, and I think, um, I think we're gonna get some of that uh, with Biden personally.
0: Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski and Democratic Senator Joe Manchin have proposed a comprehensive energy bill that includes nuclear power, renewables, carbon capture favored by fossil fuel interests. Senator Manchin said he's optimistic. What are the prospects for that getting done this year?
3: Well,
4: um, yeah, where's your optimism on this one, Scott? Okay. well,
3: (laughs) first of all, the, the bill that Greg laid out, unfortunately, is not the bill that is currently under discussion. I refer to it as the incredible shrinking energy bill, um, and and you know Lisa Murkowski has been a, um, a an excellent chair of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, and this is a in many ways a legacy issue for her, and she's pushing it very hard. She's had direct conversations with the chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee and the House of Representatives Frank Pallone, and they've talked about areas of common ground where they they could advance it in the last. Week or so, there's been quite a few of uh, very late nights among staff trying to um, elide certain provisions and keep other provisions to see to see what can be done. Uh, Notably, the tax provisions, which are really so important in these early days uh, uh, for common ground, are seem to be gone. Um, uh, Any anything that is that is particularly prescriptive seems to be gone. Uh, You know, um, I've been watching very very carefully the. The compromise on hydrofluorocarbons, which are, as, uh, as Christy I'm sure knows, are very powerful global greenhouse gas and, and really need to be phased out in an orderly fashion, preferably a federal fashion, uh, in order to um, ensure that next generations of U.S. appliances can be sold you know, overseas and, and, and here. So there's an industry case as well as an environmental case for reaching conclusion on that. And I think that is going to uh, advance. Uh, whether it advances in the context of an energy bill or in a broader omnibus spending bill is is a good question. You mentioned carbon capture and sequestration. I'm very proud of, uh, and, and that's part of this discussion too. In in the so-called "use it" bill, and don't make me tell you what the acronym stands for. But uh, <laughs> it's a it's basically a CCS or carbon capture and sequestration research bill. Um, and I, I'll tell you, uh, I'm proud of the Biden campaign for not being afraid to utter the phrase carbon capture and sequestration. There are some who would say, if you develop that technology, then it perpetuates the amount of time that we'll have fossil fuels. But the way I look at it is it provides a mechanism where you can continue to have the reliability and hopefully, if the technology is robust, the affordability associated with which are some of the benefits of fossil fuels, continue to have those, but still cast a weather eye, no pun intended. On uh, on climate change and reduce the amount of carbon that's emitted uh, substantially. In fact, someday there will be CCS that will be almost 100% effective. It'll be almost, but uh, but you know that would be a, that would be a great day. It'd be a, a, a an ability for uh, a whole lot of different uh, sources of power generation and motor fuels to exist in the same space. So that would be good.
0: Scott Siegel, Joe Joe Biden has pledged to make climate justice a pillar of his agenda. Energy companies have a well-documented record of placing refineries and polluting plants in the neighborhoods of communities of color that have less political power. Your firm firm represents those companies, or at least the industries that have practiced environmental racism. How have your views about that changed this year during America's racial reckoning?
3: Well, um, you know, the first observation is that, of course, there's been a significant increase in uh, concentration of resources and attention, at, particularly at the plant line of, of facilities. I do want to correct one mistake you, you, you made in your statement, though, Greg. You seem to imply that uh, petroleum refineries or uh, petrochemical plants or whatever seek out poor neighborhoods and then construct their facilities. That is exactly the opposite of the way it works. The way it works is when these facilities were built, There was no community at all around them. And then uh, because it does, in fact, suppress land values, that much is true, when you build an industrial facility, then communities build up around the plant line. It's not the other way around. I mean, can you imagine a more ludicrous policy than seeking out frontline communities to put facilities in? We, you know, they but, don't they don't put facilities.
4: It is not as simple as what you oh, just described. Oh, oh, no, either. No. We're working very closely with environmental justice communities
3: it, that quite, had
4: these facilities pop up in their backyard. Oh, that is Those just, humans that's, were. That's, 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 that's
3: not. It's not. Oh, that's not true. That's not true. I, I'm sorry, Christy. I agree with you on most things. But just think about it. What would the reason be? What would the reason be? It's, it's, it's silly. And it, by the way, it doesn't mean there isn't an environmental justice issue. I want to be clear about that. And, and
4: I will send you actual documented evidence of human beings whose communities were impacted after these facilities were built. It was not that there were no people who were there. Their communities were ignored in the permitting process. It happens all the time.
0: Dr. Robert Bullard is is noted as the father of environmental justice, and I believe it was a a facility in a middle-class Black neighborhood uh, in Texas. I think it was either an incinerator or a waste facility that was targeted toward—it wasn't poor. Black. It was middle class black neighborhood. Now you know. I think, and I also know that the Richmond refinery and uh, Chevron, I think, is the biggest source of carbon pollution in California. Not many people were there, and that was there before the community was around it. So there's there's cases of both, uh, but there's certainly that you know cases on on both sides of that. Um, but Scott Siegel, you know, back to the sort of the racial reckoning and, and that America has. When when are we going to stop polluting these people's lives?
3: Well. Look, I mean, uh, I, I completely agree with you that we have a, a, a history of uh, disproportionate impact uh, on, uh, on communities of color. And one of the reasons we have that disproportionate impact uh, is, uh, is because, um, you know, facilities did not control emissions in the way that they should or could. But I do think if you're being fair about this, you have to admit, that air emissions, including toxic air emissions, have been declining, not increasing, in these communities, and that hundreds of billions of dollars are spent on emissions control. Now, you can say that's not out of the—that's not a charitable uh, uh, expenditure. It's forced by government. That's partially true, but it's also for, uh, forced by the uh, sustainability and environmental goals that corporations set. So it, it's complex, but yes, that more of that should happen, and I think in in every day, in every way companies are advancing goals some of which are prompted by government and some of which are prompted by investment and some of which are prompted by simply good corporate governance so we're seeing it and and the data the the clean air trends report for example out of EPA which is generally regarded as coin of the realm in terms of air emissions at least shows substantial reductions year after year upon year so you know i i i understand the point and it's an important one but it's not like industry is taking no action to address. It.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about Joe Biden's opportunity to heal our climate. Coming up, a peek inside the cabinet, including one potential appointee that could make history.
4: The significance of a Native American in that position in the Department of Interior, which in so many ways was really designed to persecute Native Americans, is uh, just incredibly powerful.
1: Hey, everyone. I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best
3: part— we look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow Ted Climate wherever you're listening to this.
0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about Biden's climate opportunities with Christy Goldfuss of the Center for American Progress and Scott Siegel, a lobbyist for fossil fuel and other energy companies at the Washington, D.C. firm Bracewell. One of Ronald Reagan's mantras was personnel is policy. During Donald Trump's tenure, he made a number of arguably unfit, even destructive cabinet picks, especially when it came to the environment. President-elect Biden has the opportunity to reverse that, and he's made it clear that climate will be a high priority. His appointment of John Kerry, an architect of the Paris Climate Agreement, to the newly created position of climate envoy was well-received in many quarters. Some of Biden's other choices have generated controversy. Brian Deese, who is a member of the Obama administration, also helped craft the Paris Agreement, has been named head of the National Economic Council. Activists on the left have raised objections about Deese because he now works for the giant investment management firm BlackRock. Does this suggest that Biden will have a hard time placating progressives?
4: Oh, absolutely. This is going to be a challenge. There is a real active and successful climate movement that we didn't have in the Obama administration. The shift in the discussion around climate policy since 2017, 2018, the emergence of the Green New Deal network, the Sunrise Movement, this is activism that has brought about change in two, three-year period that we haven't seen in decades on climate change. So they're right to demand things be done differently. The reason that I came out at so strongly as I did for Brian Deese uh, is because I know him and I got to see what a magician he is uh, in accomplishing and tackling big problems. And that's hard to say, trust me, because I worked with him. So I tried very hard to point to the Paris Agreement, the 125 million acre withdrawal in the Arctic Ocean, all the land protections we did together, the Kigali Agreement. I mean, the list is very long of climate accomplishments that he really was our band leader for the last two years of the Obama administration. It was remarkable. And I do think he's going to be able to work with activists. And once we get to that point where he's in uh, his seat he's also going to be the head of the NEC. I mean, the idea that we're going to have a climate champion who's leading the National Economic Council, this used to be the gatekeeper in the Obama administration in the beginning that would stop a lot of the regulatory actions because they were contrary to a recovery. We're now going to have a partner there who's going to be thinking about how to invest in clean energy and really set us on the right path for our climate goals, in addition to rebuilding our economy. And that is invaluable.
0: Scott Siegel, you welcome the appointment of John Kerry as climate envoy because of his experience and expertise. He has stature. He has the trust of the president, but controls no budget and has no army of bureaucrats. So how do you think John Kerry will be as the climate envoy?
3: Well, the first thing I'd say is, is that it's the job he's being asked to do doesn't require a large bureaucracy. Because in terms of negotiating deals, there are people that are professionals in the federal government that are tasked with doing that and being supportive, whether they be in the State Department, the United States Trade Representative's Office, um, you know, um, uh, and elsewhere, even EPA's international office, such as it is. There are, there are lots of places where we have the uh, reservoir of, of expertise that can back up John Kerry. Why I liked the Kerry appointment is it's an appointment of stature. Look, if the United States is going to rejoin Paris, and I was not supportive of the United States leaving Paris in the first instance, but if the United States is going to rejoin Paris, if the United States is going to hold its head high going into Glasgow, then we, we need people that, that sh- prove the value proposition that the Biden administration is a, a, a different uh, kettle of fish, that it is, it is uh, one that's, that's uh, sending... Someone who, frankly, could have been president of the United States. I mean, he was the nominee of his party. So I, I, I think that that's a good sign. And by the way, a lot of people in industry will tell you this: that climate change is inherently an international matter. That doesn't mean you shouldn't adopt uh, domestic policies, but it it is an international matter. Um, you know, a, a single molecule of CO two released in the United States today is literally around the world in seven days. So you have to put a, a, a good team in the in the field. Now, I'll tell you, there's another side to this, which is we understand there will be a domestic policy chief for climate change. And, you know, the discussion about Brian Deese, he could have easily filled that role too. I do agree with Christy. He's a very talented guy, particularly on some clean energy issues that I uh, worked with him on back in the day. And, uh, you know, I just remember thinking, God, he's so young. And he's still young. That's what's amazing. <laughs> the whole business about BlackRock is a complete ruse. Because what did he do at BlackRock? Well, he was in charge of their environment and sustainability uh, investing. You know, he was in charge of the, what we call the ESG function. And, and while people can criticize BlackRock for being progressive or not progressive enough, they certainly led with their chin on those issues. And I can only say he was responsible for it. So, so I, that doesn't bother me at all. I am curious who will be the domestic policy advisor. And it, this is an interesting bit of a Washington parlor game uh, for us to think about for a second. Because now that you have John Kerry as the envoy, do you need an equal and opposite, someone who's a governor, a senator, somebody like that to lead this domestic go role? Maybe. On the other hand, there are a lot of people who are really good at it. I think about Ali Zaidi, for example, up in New York, who's been kind of playing that role for Governor Cuomo. Maybe that he'd be a good choice. You, know, you don't have to have a former senator to do the, the nitty gritty work of domestic side. Whereas on the foreign side, you do need someone that can be credible with heads of state. And that's why I think Kerry's an interesting
0: choice. Christy Goldfuss, one of the most talked about possible appointments is Congresswoman Deb Holland being the first Native American to head the U.S. Department of the Interior, which oversees federal lands, including the national parks. You served as deputy director of the National Park Service. What could be the significance of a Native American overseeing America's public lands and parks?
4: It gives me goosebumps every time I think about it I the significance of a Native American in that position in the Department of Interior, which in so many ways was really designed to persecute Native Americans is uh, just incredibly powerful now there's Deb Holland who is uh, just an incredibly powerful uh, second term congresswoman now. She just finished her first. And really, from the moment she came to Washington, D.C. and was on the House Natural Resources Committee, she's uh, been a powerhouse and really stood out. So I'm not surprised at all that she's on this list. But then we also have Mike Connor, who served as deputy director when I was there and who is also a Native American uh, and is on the short list for this job. So I think we have a, a whole set of amazing candidates for the Department of the Interior. But given what President-elect Biden ran on, and really his commitment to correcting wrongs of the past, putting a Native American in that seat would actually just be historic. And now that we have two really such strong names uh, that can be considered, uh, I think it's it's hard to imagine um, that it wouldn't be one of them as it has been floated in the press. Uh, but there are certainly Tom Udall, whose whole family uh, has been dedicated to the Department of Interior and really building that amazing legacy, uh, would do a phenomenal job at, at that job as well. So but it has turned out to be one of the most contentious and uh, sought after positions in the whole cabinet right now and really has played out more in public than I, I am sure the transition would like. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I, I uh, Greg, I can't say that I know Deb Holland. I I've, I've sort certainly observed her from a distance and she's uh, she's impressive. Um I I would though, uh you know, uh, whether we're talking about Deb Holland or talking about Udall, uh and even some people have mentioned Martin Heinrich also another um New Mexico senator. Uh New Mexico <laughs> it's All, New Mexico. All, New, Mexico, all <laughs> New Mexico all the time. And <laughs> and one thing I would observe though that um it that's kind of interesting to me. You know, 37% of the state of New Mexico is public land. I mean, it's, it's, it's federal land, uh, an, an incredible percentage. And a lot of that federal land, not a lot by by area, but on that federal land, there is a significant amount of oil and gas development, mostly natural gas uh, development, that, uh, that uh, is, has been important, um, and on Indian land as well. And in fact, just to give you a statistic, which you might find interesting, you know, um, New Mexico is not a wealthy state, but a billion dollars goes to New Mexico in royalty based on production on federal lands every year. So the, it, it's a mixed bag. Now, I know Deb Holland is, is thinking bigger thoughts about not only her place in history, but also how the Interior Department could be structured in a way that particularly would address past wrongs. But one of the early statements that's made about what to do on federal lands is basically what not to do where the where the Biden folks have said, well, let's 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 push the pause button, for example, on new leases on federal land. One thing is there, you know, there's two sides to every coin. I was interested to hear Governor Lujan Grisham, who has been played a major role in the Biden campaign, uh, say, "Geez, if we if we if you're going to try and stop all production on federal land, and that's not exactly what he said, but if you're going to going to start to do that, I, I think New Mexico is going to have to not be a part of that." <laughs> and uh, so there's tension there. Uh, not every uh, pr- proposal goes 100% in one direction so uh, not every appointment does either so that's uh, there is some there's some tension there to think about
0: christy Goldfuss, last word in terms of hope and fear looking at the climate possibilities in the next 4 years
4: i am really optimistic we've come to such a dark place at the end of 2020 Our energy and environment policy really was part of this campaign. President-elect Biden ran on climate in a way that no other president ever has, no other mainstream president. He put out this really ambitious policy. And as we've been discussing, he has such a deep and rich knowledge of the Senate. And there does seem to be an inkling, even from Republicans right now, that people want to start doing their jobs again. And there's not one right way to solve climate change. We've waited so long that there are many, many, many different policies that we need to move on and we need to move on right away. So I am very optimistic that 2021 is going to be such a promising and brightening year for climate policy and really for all of us and all the struggles we've gone through.
0: We've been talking about Joe Biden's opportunities and challenges in moving the country away from fossil fuels with Scott Siegel, an energy lobbyist with the firm Bracewell, and Christy Goldfuss, Senior Vice President of Energy and Environment Policy at the Center for American Progress. I'm joined now by Amy Westervelt, the host of Drilled, a true crime podcast about climate change, and Jared Blumenfeld, California Secretary for Environmental Protection. The last four years have left our country even more divided along party lines, despite overwhelming scientific evidence that climate change is happening. Still, Jared Blumenfeld thinks there could be hope for bipartisan effort.
1: Already Biden's trying to reach out. Um, I think he's, he's a, natural, uh, a natural bridge builder, I mean, to, to a fault in the Senate. And, and I think there was critique for some of the folks he reached across the aisle to. And yet you're not, you're not seeing a lot of hand coming back across the aisle towards him you know the the thing that we learned from from the obama administration is you know at some point you you need to just take the action and that's why that's why biden was elected that's why we're in the jobs that that we do in government is to take the action and science is is even clearer now than it was 8 years ago um oh my god more than 8 years ago 12 years ago when Obama started, Jesus, that's terrifying. Anyway, it's, you know, the science has become clearer. The imperative for action has become cle- clearer. Um, I was just, we just did an all hands meeting with all our our staff. And um, we actually had 4,500 people on on the Zoom this morning. And we showed a picture of Ronald Reagan signing the California Clean Air Act. And, you know, there there's this hope that we can get back to a place where, you know, Nixon created US EPA, Nixon signed the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, CEQA, all these things came in a bipartisan spirit. We're not in that place right now. So we can, I think, always try, always work to to make this a nonpartisan issue, which it is. Um, But at some point, we need to roll up our sleeves and get the job done.
0: And there are a few glimmers. Susan Collins and Mitt Romney have said that they expect the president to have wide latitude on cabinet appointments. So there's a few little signals there. Um, Amy Westerville, you tweeted recently that Democrats are, quote, a bunch of moderate bureaucrats. (laughs) How much confidence do you have in California Governor Gavin Newsom and other Democrats to do what's necessary on climate in 2021?
2: way more confidence in California Democrats doing things that are necessary than I do of the party nationally.
0: And like I I I don't
2: know on the bipartisan thing, I just feel like the only people I ever hear even saying anything about that with any sort of concern is Democrats and that kind of tells you where we're at on bipartisanship, <laughs> you know. I don't I can't remember the last time a Republican politician said well, we really need to reach across the aisle and and create consensus um i I just think that that uh the time for compromise is passed i mean i I think like it would have been great if we could have compromised in the nineties or even the early two thousands or even the mid two thousands but it didn't happen like it it didn't happen in a way that delivered the sort of action that was necessary, and now I feel like people need to stop playing politics and do what needs to get done whether it makes them popular or not whether it means that they get reelected or not we have a minimal amount of time every scientist is saying that and i hope that the democrats will you know kind of take on what does seem to be somewhat of a climate mandate from voters and just do what needs to be done
0: You're listening to a conversation about meeting our country's carbon reduction goals. This is Climate One, coming up, facing up to the real climate problem.
2: The problem with climate is not an energy problem or a technology problem. In my opinion, it's a power problem. And I don't mean electrical power. I mean structural
3: power.
0: is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about Joe Biden's opportunities for addressing the climate crisis. My guests are Jared Blumenfeld, California's Secretary for Environmental Protection, and Amy Westervelt, host of the energy podcast Drilled. Fun fact, Climate One and Drilled were both up for the iHeartRadio Best Green Podcast Award this year. Congratulations to Amy and her team for taking home the trophy. Much of America's energy lies in the West, and a lot of the leading climate policies originated in California, Washington, and Oregon. So let's dig in a bit on what's happening in that part of the country. Transportation is the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions now. California's strict fuel efficiency standards are central to the state's climate action plan. When the Trump administration tried to strike those down, the auto industry took sides, with GM and Toyota on Team Trump, and Ford, VW, and BMW aligned with California. What's the path forward now that California has an ally in the Biden administration?
1: Well, I mean, this the, this is steeped in a lot of politics that ends up in, in D.C. You know, California, because we had a clean air problem before the Clean Air Act came into force, Greg, we have authority under the Clean Air Act to set stricter limits than the rest of the nation. And 14 other states and D.C. follow California. So it isn't just California. It's actually uh, a mandate that, that others follow. And in the past, two things. One, that's never, it's very, very clear that we have that authority. The Trump administration um, and actually some of those car companies joined in a lawsuit against California. Our hope, and this is one of the promises of the Biden administration, is they can quickly direct the Department of Justice, quickly direct the Department of Transportation and the EPA to say, you know what? We need to work with California, not against it. Um, really, when you look at the global trend, this is moving in one direction, which is electrification. Everyone knows that. Uh, Mary Barra from GM, others you know, in Toyota, they, they're all talking about what they want to achieve. What the real issue is, is they're making a lot of money right now on four-by-fours, pickup trucks, and they want to continue doing that without any penalty. They don't want to have to take action here, the same action that they are taking towards zero emission vehicles in China, in the European Union, nearly in every other market. So our our thinking really is that at some point, we need to do two things. We need to sort out where we go between now and 2026. That was the key date when President Obama was in office, and we were coming out of the economic recession. The car companies were near collapse they did a deal that created one harmonized standard between the federal, the cars, and California. Now we have, as you pointed out, we've got the federal government in California on one side and half the auto manufacturers on our side, and then half the auto manufacturers still wondering what the hell to do. They're kind of 10 feet off, like Wiley e. Coyote, 10 feet off the cliff. They, they, they don't realize there's nothing underneath their feet, and um, they soon will. So at some point... <laughs> And we've already had them reach out to us. I think think they're going to realize that they're in an untenable position. We need one standard that clearly, clearly reduces greenhouse gas emissions from tailpipes and moves us quickly towards a zero emission future. As you were kind of alluding to, Greg, you know, a lot of this leadership has come from California. The governor, Gavin Newsom, came out with an executive order saying by 2035, all new Passenger vehicle sales have to be zero emission. Colorado then said they do the same thing. Uh, New Jersey's doing the same thing. The UK two days ago said they're setting a date at 2030. They originally had it at 2050. So you're getting a lot of momentum here. And I think the federal government will eventually catch up.
0: California Governor Gavin Newsom signed an executive order banning fracking in the state by 2024, and a few weeks later approved six new wells owned by a company represented by Axiom Advisors, a lobbying firm with close ties to the governor that's been in the news lately. How serious is he about banning fracking?
1: We need to think about, we we spend a lot of time thinking about the demand side, right? So the demand side is how we reduce demand in vehicles, in homes, Um, In our society and and the major thrust has really been around those issues. When you talk to the climate movement for the last 30 years, I think environmental justice advocates, whether they're in the Amazon or in Wilmington, California or Kern County, are now saying, you know what, you don't actually need to go overseas to see some pretty dramatic issues of pollution in people's lives. Um, People are living very, very close to, to oil extraction and so there's a big environmental justice movement in the state, which is about making sure there's health and and equity and protective setbacks for oil and gas production in the state. So there's been a very big focus, and rightly so, on the supply side. Actually, we're doing a UC Berkeley study that's coming out this month uh, in December on, on looking at the twin, how you calibrate supply and demand, how you move towards... Our goal is to get by 2045 to a carbon neutral economy. So that means in state, what does that mean for supply? When you look at fracking, fracking's a very, very de minimis part of the equation. You know, on the East Coast, it where the shale and, and other formations uh, are different, it's a very, very different ball game. But in California, uh, you know, it's less than five percent of oil production is fracking. So I, I don't want to say fracking is not an issue. It, it certainly is. However, the bigger issue is how we deal with supply. How do we phase out supply in a manageable way? Um, and how do we do it in such a way that there's a just transition? You know, Unlike Appalachia, where you know the coal industry was decimated and there was really a lot of economic dislocation, how do we make sure that low-income communities of color actually benefiting from the transition rather than their families being caught up in this. So it it gets very complicated quickly, but it's really important to focus on. Um, And I think for the first time we're doing that, um, our goal is partly to make sure that we don't just ban all production in California while there's still a need for it and allow Venezuelan crude, Saudi crude um, to come in with, has no environmental regulations or standards. So the important thing is to have a roadmap towards zero. We need to get zero as the goal when it comes to extraction around the world. Whether Wherever the oil comes from, we need to get to a place where we don't extract any more or extract very, 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 very small percentage of what we do now. So, Greg, that's our goal. Um, in the meantime, the governor has said, yeah, I want to work with the legislature to actually ban fracking. Um, but it would be a pyrrhic victory if we banned fracking but increase oil supplies generally.
0: Amy, one ongoing debate on climate one is avenues for addressing the climate emergency: personal action, going solar, plant based, electric, and systems change, confronting economic and political power and structural racism. How do you think about individual action and the need for systems change?
2: I think that they're um, deeply intertwined. Um, I think that the debate between you know. Systems change and individual action that turns it into some sort of either or is really unproductive and not helpful um, basically, I think that you know um so we
0: need to do, both, need to do both, both both at the same you time need to do both,
2: and I think that we have a real problem in this country of thinking about personal action only in terms of consumption and not in terms of organizing and you know political action and voting like voting and yeah exactly you know yeah. or. Or like, you know, um, looking at as an individual, how can I spur more change in my community? Things like that versus do I buy this cup or that cup? Um, You know, like the this cup or that cup thing, fine, sure, do that too. You know, like people should do things that feel like they're in line with their values and what, you know, where they want the world to go. But yeah, I think, you know, there are ways for individuals to plug into systems change, and we need individuals to lead systems change and and inspire other people to do the same.
0: Jared, you're a systems thinker, and have interviewed systems thinkers on your podcast. How do you think about connecting individual action at the same time changing systems?
1: I mean, to Amy's, I, when I was chiming in, um, you know, the issue of voting, like, doesn't seem like it's kind of caught up to the environmental movement as much. Um it'll be interesting to see the stats that come out of this most recent election. But I did this interview with this guy, Nathaniel Stanett from the Environmental Voter Project, and he he was saying that, you know, in 2016, 50% of environmentalists, namely people for whom climate change is the number one issue, fifty percent of people voted. For the population as a whole, it was sixty percent. So we we vote 10% below um and that's local elections, statewide elections. Uh so first of all, vote. Um secondly, I I think, you know, to your point, Greg, about the misinformation and the distraction that the oil companies have kind of kind of lulled us into this sense that if only we just got a paper straw, the world would be fine, um, is is to avoid their own culpability and responsibility. So the main thing I think we need is strong Strong, smart regulations that protect public health in the environment that are coordinated really between the European Union and California and the rest of the United States, and you know, really thinking about the 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 scientific premise, I think we still, as an environmental movement and as Democrats, don't believe enough, which is what Amy started with, which is our lives really do depend on this. The science is extremely clear. Right. And we see talking of systems, we see natural systems collapsing. You know, we see the pandemic. We've got 4 million acres of California that burned this year. Um, Our systems are failing and our response has to be bold. It has to move away from incrementalism because if it doesn't, we're not responding to the threat at hand. Right. It's, it's kind of like if we knew an asteroid was coming towards the planet, and we were building like cardboard <laughs> shelters to protect us. Like at some point it's like, well, and you were asking us like, could we build stronger cardboard shelters? <laughs> no, we actually need to build a real defense system. And that defense system is going to be expensive. Um, it's going to take a lot of people. It's going to take a concerted effort. And it has, we're already, you know, Amy said like, it'd be great if we'd had consensus in the nineties, um, We kind of had scientific consensus. We just haven't had political consensus. So people don't want to do everything themselves. They want, you know, I think about the Americans with Disabilities Act. We don't talk about buildings being disabled friendly, right? We just talk about buildings. The same has to be true of everything. We just need to bake in climate change to every single thing that we do so it doesn't become this thing. But just every building is electrified. Every car is electric. Every aspect of our life is decarbonized so we don't need to do it someone else has and that someone is is government
0: it seems like that's a moment you know uh of right now because when obama came in it was healthcare first uh, we'll fix the economy, then healthcare, and then climate three. Right now, there's COVID, the economy, uh, there's there's a racial reckoning, and climate. So now there seems to be an opportunity to try to weave those together in a way, not ordering, people are talking about, to try to weave them together and problem solve for multiple problems at the same time. So, Amy, how do you think that can be done to sort of weave race, climate, and COVID yeah, together? Yeah, well,
2: I mean, I think the drivers of those problems are all woven together already, <laughs> you know so um it's not like to me it's sort of like of course you would a- approach all those things at once because how do you how can you solve for climate if you don't solve for income inequality and you don't solve for racial inequality like there there is no um in, in my mind there is no real solution that is simply swapping one energy source for another because the problem with climate is not an energy problem or a technology problem in my opinion, it's a power problem, and I don't mean electrical power, I mean structural power. <laughs> you know, you don't get a problem like climate change where we had global scientific consensus decades ago, we knew exactly what needed to be done, and a small handful of people made decisions that impacted the entire world for their own gain without capitalism on steroids, white supremacy, and a little patriarchy thrown in. <laughs> You know, Um, like we have a system that gives a lot of power to very few people. And that like solving for that is the solve for climate, race, COVID and, you know, the economy all at once.
0: You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about the path forward for climate policy in the Biden administration. My guests were Amy Westervelt, founder of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network and host of the podcast Drilled, and Jared Blumenfeld, California Secretary for Environmental Protection. Earlier, we spoke with Christy Goldfuss, who heads up energy and environment policy at the Center for American Progress, and Scott Siegel, who represents energy companies at the Washington, D.C. lobbying firm Bracewell. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a rating or telling a friend. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.